Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, the podcast by filmmakers for filmmakers. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host Jeff, as always. Jeff and I are writers and directors and passionate about the art of storytelling. Filmmaker Mixer is a creative hub where aspiring and established filmmakers come together to share experiences, insights, strategies, and inspiration. Today, we have on filmmaker James Rowe to discuss his new feature film, Breakwater. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and today we are chatting with writer-director James Rowe about his new film, Breakwater. Breakwater is a thriller that stars Dermot Mulroney and Darren Mann. It's a fantastic film, lots of twists and turns. In fact, it won the audience favorite feature at this year's Boston Film Festival, so this is going to be a great conversation. James, welcome to the show. Jeff and Andrew, thank you so much. Um, it's uh, it's great to be here, and it's it's great to meet you and your uh, legion of of listeners out there. Well, I I really enjoyed your movie, and I'm looking forward to, to jumping in and talking about that. But before we get there, uh, I saw on your IMDb page that uh, when you were 18, you played a British redcoat in Last of the Mohicans, and and that was shooting in your hometown. And I'm curious, uh, was that the pivotal experience that made you want to become a filmmaker or were you interested in movies before that? Yeah, it was, um, it, it was good timing for me actually, because I had um, somehow gotten out of a French class. I was, I was taking my senior year of high school um, to take a, what they called video. Um, and uh, it was really a film uh, study class. It, it was a kind of appreciation, a film appreciation class. And I was learning a lot at that time in that class about how a movie is put together and how many people it takes to make a movie, which I think a lot of people, you know, certainly the people who listen to this podcast understand that pretty well, but a lot of people still don't know um, the army that it takes um, to make a film or, or, or a television show. And, and I was interested in that and just, just looked in the newspaper one day and saw that uh, the Last of the Mohicans was coming to town to shoot in uh, my hometown of Asheville, North Carolina. And I, uh, I walked up to their production office door and, and knocked and they let me in. <laughs> and I said, you know, little did please. they know. <laughs> yeah, little did they know. Uh, and, I, you know, they, all they had for me at the time was um, Peter Haas was the publicist on that. And he had um, he had some work for me, uh, you know, driving ATVs. Uh, with the actors kind of deep into the woods and doing the headshots in front of water, uh, or not headshots, but the one sheets, the poster in front of uh, uh, waterfalls and that kind of thing. And were you uh, uh, an intern or was this like a paid gig? Or Yeah, at that time I was, um, I guess I was an intern, really. Uh, they weren't paying me even as a production assistant. And, um, but I just loved sort of being around the production. And I wasn't at that time anywhere close to the set. Um, I was just helping out with some of the publicity um, and really just being a runner. And then Peter went back to New York um, and uh, I said, you got anything else for me? And the assistant director looked at my hair, which was pretty long at the time. I was in a band. And, um, <laughs> and he said, you know, we can take that hair and put it back into a ponytail, which is a, like a cue, which is this, you know, ponytail that the British soldiers wore um, during the time of uh, of the revolution. And, uh, and we can make you a British red coat. And and so that's what I jumped right into doing. Um, and the guy who was training all of the, the on-camera extras, which is what I ended up being, his name's Dale Dye. And you may have heard of him, but he, he trained uh, everyone in Saving Private Ryan and uh, even before that, Platoon. Um, and it was an incredible experience working with Dale and having him 
basically do a, a boot camp with us for about two weeks where we got into these hot wool uniforms in the middle of the summer and uh, ran about uh, four miles every morning and, uh, um, and then learned how to march in rank and fight in rank and load the brown Bessie rifles and uh, the muzzle loaders. It was an incredible experience just learning to do all that. But then by the time we were needed on set, we were very near camera all the time. So I got to watch Michael Mann and, and Dante uh, Spinotti, the, uh, the Italian uh, cinematographer, uh, do their, their work. And of course, Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe and the whole, the whole cast. Well, I'm curious, how uh, realistic were these costumes? Because, you know, shoes and boots of those days were not comfortable. <laughs> I imagine that was pretty brutal to, uh, to be doing all that uh, prep work to become a soldier incredibly realistic uh <laughs> hot as anything and also um they didn't want to wash them because you know if they if they washed them every <laughs> every day or even once a week they would have to just go back in and dirty them up again and um so they were kind of happy for us to just sort of sweat in these things and um and and live in our own stink for a, a, a couple of months uh, eventually, I think we we all kind of rose up and said, "You got to wash these things because you know we're we're excited to be here, but um, but we really can't be around each other for for, <laughs> for very long." In like moving on uh, into your career, your short film Saxman was purchased by PBS for their Southern Vision series, and you were invited to join the American Film Institute as a directing fellow. You know, we have a lot of our listeners are interested in film school or younger folks. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience at the American Film Institute? Yeah, so just leading into that, people are probably wondering, well, how do you get into AFI or any film school? And um, you know, it's just uh, it, it's a different route for everybody, I guess. I was living in in Asheville in Western North Carolina. I didn't have any connections to Los Angeles, so um, my goal initially was not to go to AFI, but just to get a short film made. By the time I got out out of undergrad, I didn't want to wait until um, you know until going to graduate school to do a short. I wasn't sure if I would even go to graduate school, so I was I was at uh, Carolina. I was at UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, they had a pretty good film program there, but it was it was not one that was really production um, heavy or oriented, and it wasn't designed for me to come out of the program with a with a film. So you were so doing I, actual production in the in the program. We did some exercises, but there was there wasn't a requirement to have a, a thesis film. Gotcha. For example, um, I said I have to have something when I leave here. And so I, um, I, I went to the school. I said, look, I, I want to make a short film through, uh, through the department. I want to use their equipment, uh, some of their equipment, but I also want to make it an independent study. Can I raise money and have that money uh, be contributed to the school so it's a tax write-off and goes directly to my movie? And oh, they interesting. Said, they said, sure. And I was like, <laughs> are you really? <laughs> and uh, they, they, they let me do it. And so... Um, they basically made it part of my course that I could, you know, I could raise any money I could raise um, could be a contribution to the school and therefore a tax write off for the investors. And so uh, I raised about, I think, uh, 12 or 13, 12 or $13,000, uh, which seems like maybe a lot to make a short film these days. Um, but uh, I needed to shoot on 16 millimeter. And, and there were a lot of things that, uh, you know, that were going to be costly. Uh, we used a professional crew. Uh, for part of it and a student crew for for a, uh, half of our crew was students and half of our crew were, were professionals 
and um, the movie turned out pretty great. My my uh, uh, my brother was up at Berkeley College of Music up in Boston with a bunch of great players up there, and we had him um, write the score for the film, and we had all all this this just great music that these incredible uh, students at Berkeley were uh, were were making for us. So Saxman turned out well enough that PBS bought it. Um, and also it was my submission to AFI. I was writing a feature that I was going to try to make one day and I didn't know how I was going to ever make it. And somebody said, maybe you should go to film school um, <laughs> since you're writing this thing and, and you've got, uh, you know, you, you want to meet some people and try to, you know, try to take that next step. And so I just sort of submitted to AFI on a whim uh, and they liked my, my short quite a bit. And uh, somebody called me, uh, this is kind of, how my my next movie got made but so we'll talk about afi if you'd like but um somebody called me before afi ever called me a producer who was working for john davis at the time he called me his name's sean first he's still in business and 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 doing really well and has made a lot of movies but um sean called me out of the blue said this is sean first calling from john davis uh, davis entertainment uh, in Hollywood. And it was, it really felt like one of those prank calls that you, you were going to get from your buddies who knew you were trying to, you know, be in the movie business. And it truly was Sean who had seen my short because somebody who was screening short films for AFI had shown it to this producer and he liked it enough to give me a call. Um, so that was my first connection in the business before I ever knew that I was going to AFI. And then at some point, uh, I found out that I got into AFI and I, I went out to visit the campus and I, and I met Sean and he said, what are you doing next? And I had a, a feature I was writing. Um, he read my feature and he optioned it uh, a few days later. So oh, wow, um, it was a very fortunate turn of events that I had a, a, a feature script in my pocket when I showed up in, in Hollywood uh, to go to AFI. Um, and then, uh, then of course, AFI, I just, I just learned a lot there and made a lot of, uh, great connections and friends and, you know, future collaborators. Was that Blue Ridge? Was that, was that the feature? Was that the, Blue Ridge was Fall? That the it, yes, it was originally called, um, Shepherd and, uh, it was released as Blue Ridge Fall and we had Peter Facinelli and Chris Isaac and Amy Irving in the film. It was, uh, um, I wanted to shoot it in North Carolina. We weren't, it was a North Carolina movie. Uh, it was set in Western North Carolina, but we ended up having to shoot it in Utah, weirdly enough. And that's how these things work sometimes. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, that was, that was my first, my first feature. Well, I want to, I want to talk about that and dive into that a little bit, but uh, tell us a little bit more about your AFI experience. I'm, I'm curious. Um, one of the things Andrew and I talked about a lot with guests is that the idea of building your tribe. And I, I think that a lot of people who go to film school meet producers and directors and writers and, you know, DPs that they want to work with. Did you develop relationships that you continue to, uh, to have today on, on your projects? I do have a lot of friends that I, I consult with and that, um, that I'm still in touch with from AFI. Um, uh, I have worked with with some of them on projects, um, and uh, on this last one on Breakwater, um, we I don't have any I didn't have anybody from my class uh, working on Breakwater, um, but uh, a good buddy of mine really helped me with uh, some of the script development as we were you know a, a writers group that I have he was part of that, uh, and he went to AFI. But interestingly enough, even if you don't necessarily um, have a group of people that become say your production company. Uh, that you're always working with them on every project. 
just the fact that you went to AFI, it's sort of, you know, to a degree, it broadens the pool of people that you, you meet with. And there's a common language that all of us that went to AFI or maybe any film school tend to have. Um, and I've both on both of my features as director, I've worked with cinematographers who went to AFI um, in different years. So we sort of knew a, a lot of the same people. And um, as I said, there's a way at AFI of, of teaching filmmaking. Um, it's maybe more classic than in, in some other programs. Um, uh, and uh, there's a certain methodology and, and workflow that's taught uh, that's very professional uh, leaning and um, and it it's a way that you know I think when you work with other people who who have been through that program, it's uh, it's a common way that we've all learned to work and um, and so that we all we all sort of immediately connect and and maybe have a bit more of a shorthand uh, in in terms of expressing what we want to do uh, visually visually or or with the narrative. Well, Blue Ridge Fall, um, I. I don't know if you premiered at the Austin Film Festival, but you did screen there, correct? Oh yeah, I love the Austin Film. Yeah, Festival. that's because I'm here in Austin, and Andrew and I were just we were just there a few weeks ago covering the festival. It's a great festival. Um, well, that's kind of cool that you were here with that movie, your first film. So, how did that project come to be? Was it through this relationship with the producer? It was through the relationship with the producer. Um, he had, was started taking it out. I mean, so I was going to school and, and, you know, learning to be a director. I had done a number of shorts, just sort of, you know, short projects uh, in my undergrad. And then I'd done that, that short sax man. I felt pretty confident. Um, I had also worked as a photographer um, for a guy named Mike Boer, who shot for National Geographic. So I worked as an assistant to him. And, and um, so I, I had a, a kind of strong sense of what I wanted to do visually, um, even before entering AFI. But, uh, you know, I still had a lot to learn. And, and I learned a lot about just sort of the methodology of, of a feature level, you know, kind of directing job, what you need to do and be prepared for when you show up on set. And uh, that was incredibly helpful at the film school level, uh, because we were really following that kind of methodology in every project we did at AFI. At the same time, Sean First, who had optioned um, Shepard at the time, which became Blue Ridge Fall, uh, he was taking out the script to everybody in the kind of classic way that you do. Agents were reading it, development executives were reading it at, uh, at companies, and uh, Oliver Stone's company that he had set up with Danny Halstead to do um, independent films. They did a movie called Freeway. I don't, I'm not sure what other films they did, but uh, they were called Illusion Entertainment. And they took an interest in the script and they decided that they wanted to do it. And so I was I was shooting my uh, third cycle film at AFI and Sean first rides up on a motorcycle with uh, some some date that he had on, on the back of his bike to deliver the news on set as I'm shooting this student film that we we had a couple million dollars and we were going to go off and make the movie. And uh, it wow. was. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty special, special moment um, to uh, to be there. Uh, and, you know, you had a lot of you had a lot of people very happy for me. Then you had kind of people going, you know, why does he get to do this? Um, but uh, but that was uh, it, it was, a, you know, it was a great experience to be, you know, in the middle of doing what I loved already at film school. And then to know I could kind of step it up and take it to another level soon after now with independent films uh, as uh, you know 
almost always happens to some degree. That movie did not happen with Oliver Stone's company because Illusion Entertainment was ultimately an illusion of some sort because they just uh, uh, they folded at some point and or decided they didn't want to continue. Uh, so we were we were back out, you know, shopping the movie around. But the movie had been announced with with Oliver's attachment, and that helped us get it to other people and ultimately get it made. But it took another couple of years uh, to to get it made, even after we thought, you know, we were we were on the the quick path to uh, to production. Well, staying on, uh, you know, making movies, I'm curious about your new movie, Breakwater. Where did that idea come from? So Breakwater is was my chance to come back to North Carolina and really make a movie in North Carolina. I said, I'm going to do this at some point because we, I had made this North Carolina movie and shot it in Utah where we we couldn't ever show the sky because we'd see the Rockies. Right. And so <laughs> so one of those indie film things, you know, it's just uh, you got to shoot this thing in, in Utah because we don't have the money now to take everybody to North Carolina and the unions are too strong there and. We, uh, we feel like we'll have more support from Utah, et cetera. So uh, I had to sort of make that sacrifice and make Utah look like North Carolina. And I said, I really want to do something one day in North Carolina if I have the right idea. And the inspiration was really visiting um, the Outer Banks. I had been to the Outer Banks before, but I visited the Outer Banks about uh, five or six years ago. I was traveling down from New York and driving down with my family back into North Carolina and I went through Kerala, which is a, a little town in, uh, in the north of the Outer Banks. And um, I saw this lighthouse there that I thought was really unique. It was surrounded by trees. It wasn't out on like a kind of rocky outcropping. And it was uh, it felt mysterious and sort of hidden. And it just not only that, it was actually the lighthouse was situated on a piece of property that looked like a studio backlot. It had you know, these great old houses, it had a church, it had uh, a bookstore, it had uh, a little schoolhouse. And so it kind of looked like what I had seen, you know, uh, at Universal Studios or Warner when I'd been on their backlots, these little, you know, sort of picturesque, you know, pieces of towns that are built onto the, to the studio. I thought this is a great way to, uh, to, to do an independent film where we have everything kind of in the same place. That was my idea, at least initially. And I and so I started to write something around that place, that location of the Kuratuk Beach Lighthouse uh, that, that had inspired me. And when you when you're first, you, know, you can be inspired a lot of ways in making a film. It could be a, a character. It could be a situation. Um, it could be a, a place. Um, and in this case, it was a place that I needed to now populate with characters. And so you know it's there's something mysterious and atmospheric about the place and now you have to figure out what's the situation i need to build around this place and that's what breakwater became breakwater is it's a thriller and it's about a a young man who gets out of prison in virginia and promises another older inmate who's been a mentor to him that he'll find this this older man's estranged daughter. And uh, it's believed that she's living in this small town down on the Outer Banks. Well, in order to do so, this, this young man, Dovey, who's gotten out of prison, he has to cross state lines, break, violate his parole in order to try to find her out of his loyalty for, uh, um, for Ray, who's played by Dermot Mulroney. And I thought, this is great. There's something at stake here. 
Here's a kid trying to start his life over. He's just gotten out of prison and he is now going to put himself at risk uh, as a matter of loyalty to a friend of his. And now we can start, now I can really start to build uh, a whole web around that particular location that inspired me so much. As you mentioned, you got Dermot Mulrooney and Darren Mann and uh, a really great cast. So, and Darren Mann was great. I thought he was, it was a really perfect choice for that character. Oh, I agree. Um, how did you put the cast together? Was that something on your shoulders or through a casting director or through your producer? Tell me about that process. Uh, so we worked with two great casting directors, Orly Sidowitz uh, and Stacey Pianco, um, and uh, also a, a, um, a Tracy Kilpatrick, who's a casting director based uh, out of, I believe she's in Chapel Hill, but she's a regional casting director. So she was our, our local casting director. She brought in a, a lot of great actors, including J.D. Evermore, uh, who plays Dovey's father. Um, so it was a it was a web of casting that we kind of put together. Um, Orly and 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 Stacy in L.A. and then Tracy working in North Carolina. Um, and I love being able to cast as many of those supporting roles as possible and lead roles if we can find them uh, regionally. Because if if we're going for a, a feel that's authentic to the place, which I hope we were able to capture, then uh, then I think uh, oftentimes the the people who, who come from that place or have chosen to live in that place uh, will have a sensibility for that. And so we, you know, that that was the, the effort at least. And so um, I do, I am very happy with my cast, with my whole ensemble. Uh, but uh, Alyssa Goss is, is a new face um, and she plays Eve, uh, the daughter that, uh, uh, that Dovey is going to uh, uh, to try to find, and of course does find in the course of the story. And uh, and yes, Darren Mann is on 1923 right now. And Dermot, you know, the thing with Dermot, casting Dermot is, and I was just so excited when he wanted to do it because I had seen him do a lot of different things. And I think people know him for his romantic comedies and he's right, doing some, right. some darker things now, but they know him for My Best Friend's Wedding, which he was certainly great in and um, and a lot of other, you know, even Christmas films and these kinds of things. He, he does a lot of work. But Dermot had also done um, some interesting uh, films that maybe people weren't as familiar with that I dug up and, and watched uh, really carefully. So there's a movie that David Gordon Green directed called Undertow. And uh, Dermot plays this Southern kind of pig farmer in, in that. And, um, and I just knew he could do it. But I think a lot of people wouldn't have thought of him for this role first and foremost. And that's what excited me even more because if you can get the audience out there that loves Dermot Mulroney to go, wow, I haven't seen him do anything like this, or I'm, uh, you know, I'm surprised that he's, he's taken on this kind of role or character. I want to see him do that. Then you can actually, you play with the audience's expectations a little bit about who Dermot's going to be in the story. And I think that was that was helpful for um, uh, for us to to have someone who who already had a, a maybe, you know, a, a little bit of a, a sense from his own audience of, of who he was and what kind of character he was going to be. And we could then turn that uh, bit by bit in the story to something that hopefully surprises people. I have a little bit of a two parter question. As a writer, I'm curious about your process on how you maybe flesh out an initial idea into a polished screenplay, whether it be beat sheets, treatments, you know, do you have to know the ending before you even start writing? 
And then my second parter is once you uh, have the script written and you get a cast, how much, if any, do you rewrite based on who you cast, to, you know, what they bring might bring to the table, how, you know, um, their ideas or um, how they may affect the script in any way? So the, the first part there is my process is generally I want to have as much fun as I can writing it because we know what a slog it can become, the writing process. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's a challenge. It's the, um, you know, people, a lot of people say, God, I just wish I didn't have to write it. I could just go make it. And I guess that's why a lot of directors, you know, some directors who started off as writer directors just became directors and admitted later on in their careers that the reason was that the writing part was just so hard. And, um, and I think for me, I love writing it because I feel like I write in such a way that I hope I'm trying to express visually also and in terms of the transitions and the flow and, and what we're gonna be putting on screen. I try to write for the screen as closely as possible without weaving in a lot of you know, camera directions and things until, uh, until later in the process. But I also just really want to enjoy getting up and writing every day. And one of the one of the ways that I can do that is to not outline so specifically early on. I know this is not what every screenwriting book teaches you. And I've taught screenwriting, so I understand there's a lot of different methods to to approaching the work. Um, some people do say you have to know your ending before you should before you write fade in. Um, I don't feel that way. I think you have to know that. You're, you're moving toward one of a series of possible endings that there's only you know so many ways this this thing could work out. And I think you have to know some major places that like I knew I knew a big kind of turning point set piece that was the midpoint of my film. Like I knew what that was going to be. And so that would that anchored me a bit. So I could write toward that. And then when I'm writing away from that, I have to you know put some more anchors in place to be writing toward. So the big, the big kind of moments, uh, the big set pieces, as well as the big turns, I have them in my head. But day to day, I might not know what the next scene is when I sit down to write. And I think there's something enjoyable about that, for me at least, because it's almost like I'm sitting down to read a book, uh, what's going to happen next. And it allows me to go places sometimes that, you know, that I wouldn't have thought to go, maybe had I had a more um, rigid structure in front of me. Um, that being said, you know, planning is always very helpful and, and it always depends on how, how much time you have too. I've written, uh, I've written movies for other people. And when I have a few months to get, get a draft together, that's going to be shot, you know, um, you know, within three or four months, I have to be a lot, uh, a, a lot more strict with my page count every day. And I have to be a lot more strict with my structure. Uh, whereas if I'm writing for myself, if I'm writing on spec, um, I can take some time to, to find the story. Because one of the things uh, about the writing process is that once you start writing, you're learning about the characters as you write. You may have written some you know, very long bios about their backstories and their histories, but you start to learn their voice. You start to learn the things they'll say and they won't say, the things they'll do or they won't do. And when you know your characters better, that actually helps you make some some better decisions that are more plot related that are, you know, that are actually going to turn the story this way or that way, because you know, your characters wants and needs better and you know what motivates them more. So oftentimes I'll be writing out sort of, you know, into 
you know, into a, not a void exactly, but I'm writing out into a place that I can't see quite as clearly. And once I get that first draft done, then I can go back and start to shape things based on the characters I now know much better. And do you go back and do a specific pass on, say, one character's voice or a pass on taking out dialogue that maybe made sense when you were writing it, but now that you know the plot, you know the nuance of the character, you are thinning up the dialogue. Do you do specific passes on on different aspects of the script? Yeah, always. It's a it's a kind of a you're shaving, you know, you're refining <laughs> bit by bit. You know, you've got that that lump of clay and you've shaped it into something now in that first draft that that actually looks like something and is is maybe kind of interesting but you've got all, you know all those weird lumps sticking out and you've got some holes there too that need to be filled and i think you know you're just shaping shaping each time and it usually takes me about 3 before i start to show it to anybody i mean before i show it to anybody who could potentially buy it or make the movie or get attached to the project um you know i have a writers group and we we show work along the way but um for me, I, I really don't like to show outside of that group. I, I don't like to show it to anybody until I've, I've done sort of three passes on it. So there's that first discovery pass. The second pass is really nailing down the turns, the structure, the transitions. And then there's that last pass where you're shaping character, you're shaping moments, you're making things less maybe predictable or you're trying to. Uh, you're shaping the dialogue. Um, and you're you're looking at stuff and going, what can I do more? Is there more that I can put into this moment that serves the scene better? Or you know, sometimes at the on that in that third pass, you're actually questioning scenes and going, does this scene you know replicate something I did earlier? Is it needed? If I just you know uh, pulled it out of the story, would anybody care? Um, or would it you know would they miss it? Um, yeah, so definitely there's a there's a shaping of it all the way through. And then to Andrew's, uh, you know, second part of his question, you get on on set, you start to talk to your actors about what they think of the characters. Um, if the actors really like the dialogue and kind of like what it says about their character and feel like it's intuitive for them, then then great. We, we move forward with the, the scene as written, at least, you know, in the first couple of takes or in the rehearsal process, if you get any rehearsal. Um, and then as you start to, you know, to work the scene, you, you realize almost all the time you've overwritten. You, you, because one of the big things that you, you, you see when you bring great actors onto the set is that um, they don't need those three lines. In fact, maybe, maybe they need one, maybe they don't need any of them because it's just a look now. And that look says everything. So you can start to shape, um, you know, shape the scene a bit more. And usually it involves trimming dialogue, making things uh, more specific um, and more clear and direct uh, in the way that the, that the actor approaches those moments in the scene. Did you ever have like a eureka moment in the script where you were writing and trying to figure things out and then suddenly that one idea sort of bolted through and you were like, oh man, this, this totally works. And totally elevates this story in some way. Something maybe you didn't expect that just came to you in the, in the moment. I'm sure I probably did. You know, you have a lot of those. Um, you know, again, because characters surprise you. They, they really do. They, you, you think, uh, I didn't think that he was going to do that. I think there was... Um, you well, know, the character part... starts to talk to you and, 
and starts pushing you a direction that maybe you didn't expect once that character is fleshed out? Absolutely. And, interesting, um, interesting. And, you know, they kind of provide those eureka moments for you. They, they decide that they're going to go left when you thought you were going to make them go right. And when they do that, you know, with Dermot and with, with Ray uh, Childress, the character he plays, um, he's a, you know, he's a dark character at times, um, but he's also charming as hell. So it's, you know, you start to really like him. And I'm not saying that you're pulling for him every moment in this film, but certainly toward the beginning of the film, we, we like him quite a bit. And without giving too much away, uh, we maybe start to question you know, the fact that we ever liked him, <laughs> you know, once, <laughs> once, once the story progresses, but that's fun, you know, because if you can, if you can hold on to some bit of um, endearing quality uh, or even some empathy that the character can, uh, that the audience can have for the character, even as that character starts to do things that we wouldn't, we would never do. Um, and maybe starts to do, starts to do things that, that are, pushing him more toward being the antagonist of the film, then, uh, you know, then, then that's where a lot of the fun of experiencing a movie is, is some of those contradictions of, of, of the bad guy not being a, a one-dimensional bad guy. So for me, I think Eureka moments, rather than being like big plot device moment, and I'm sure I had a couple of those too, and you have a lot of Eureka moments in the editing room because, you know, editing is a whole nother rewrite um, and so, you, you know, you can see it in front of you and you can't quite always, you know, figure out where to go next. Um, and then, you know, you'll, you'll get a call from your editor or you'll call your editor in the middle of the night and, and go, I know what we need to do tomorrow. Don't let me forget. And those are a lot of big Eureka moments. But in the writing process, the Eureka moments for me are more discovery moments about the character, what they would do, what they wouldn't do, and when they're going to make their big leap out of their comfort zone and try something that they maybe wouldn't have done prior to this story. And, uh, and so with Dovey, the same way, a lot of those Eureka moments were, were what makes Dovey stay in a situation where he's at risk. Um, oh, this is why Eureka, you know? And, um, so a lot of that is, is character driven in, in my mind, those discoveries. Well, you said something interesting about Dovey being likable, but sort of dark, uh, and and actually the same thing with Dermot's character. He he is he's likable. He's dark, but he's likable in a lot of ways. And I think that's the interesting interesting thing to me about you know broken characters. I, I I'm I always like characters that you know are flawed and and imperfect and broken. And to use a term that Andrew uses a lot when they do make those twists and turns, either going further dark or maybe uh, showing some redemption, it feels more earned, I think, when you have a character like that. Yeah, earned is a good word for it. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, characters have to earn it all, you know, every step of the way, um, or they should. Um, and, I, and I have to say that, you know, one of the ways that you find complexity in your character is just to to start from a place um, of emotionality, you know, I think, is to say, what does this person really want? If they could have anything that they want, and, you know, in, in the case of Ray, he's behind bars. It's not as simple as he doesn't want to be in jail anymore. Uh, 
it's, it's, you know, you, you got to start to ask questions of your characters that you would ask of yourself. What's the first thing I would do if somebody let me out of this prison cell tomorrow, right? And, and by asking those questions, um, you feel that then their actions are earned because they're motivated by something that, uh, that feels, um, you know, it, it feels authentic and it feels tangible and it feels specific to that particular character. You know, Dovey is a character, uh, the character that, that Darren Mann plays, um, who is very loyal and, and maybe loyal to a fault. Well, how can you be loyal to a fault? Well, watch the movie and you'll see. And I think there's, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, that's a lot of the fun of, of uh, finding those earned moments is asking lots of questions of your characters. What would they do if? What would I do if? And, and sort of pretending you're each character along the way a little bit and, uh, and you know, trying to find uh, a path for them that, that feels motivated along the way. It's tightly written. I like the dialogue. I like the action. I like the urgency of it. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic film. So tell people where they can learn more about the film, uh, look at the screening dates, and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So we we are uh, the film's going to be released this Friday, December twenty second, uh, in theaters and on demand, and uh, it's available for pre order right now. Breakwater, one word, is the is the name of the film. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you go to Apple TV and, and, and look on iTunes, you'll, you'll find it and you'll be able to, to order it there. But uh, it's also playing in New York and LA and Chicago and, uh, a few other cities. We're excited to finally get it out to people. It's been a couple of years because it was shot in pandemic times and, and things were a little slower kind of getting, getting us, you know, getting the movie finished and then, um, and, and out of post. And uh, so it's so great. It's done a festival run. It, it you know, premiered at Cinequest. Um, and uh, we were able to show it in a, in a theater, the California Theater, uh, with over a thousand people there. And uh, I never thought I would see one of my films in a, you know, in, in one of those old, you know, palace style theaters uh, with, uh, with a thousand people. And uh, it was an exciting uh, night and people seemed to love it, you know, watching it all together. So Hopefully some people will make it into theaters to see this, but, but if not, it is, it's out there and, and ready to be watched uh, on Friday, December 22nd. And if people want to follow your work, are you like an Instagram guy or Facebook, or do you have a website for your, for your other projects? Yeah, I, I think for this um, and what's probably coming up next for me, what I'm writing currently and, and might be teasing out a little bit, uh, Instagram is uh, at uh, by James Rowe. So like a byline, uh, B-Y, James Rowe, R-O-W-E is my last name. And, uh, and that's a good way to go. Um, and yeah, you could, you could do that. But also uh, at Breakwater Movie uh, is a good way to just find out more about the film. Um, and I know that, that all of the actors are going to be you know, talking about the film this week and have been talking about the film. Uh, so you can, you, know, you can check out Dermot Moroney's uh, website, uh, I'm sorry, is Instagram and, and, uh, and some other places just to get a sense of, you know, uh, the, the kind of build up to this release and, and how much it means to the actors as well. Well, that's fantastic. Well, James, it's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, the film Breakwater, it's fantastic. I look forward to the next projects uh, that you're developing and working on, and let's definitely stay in touch. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, it's been uh, a pleasure to talk about film and to get into the weeds, as you said. <laughs> Very good. Well, you take care, my friend. All right, you too. 
Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Melody Lopez. Our theme song was composed by Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.